There's a story um, about a man who whose uh, work called him into an unfamiliar area. He began uh, going to a place um, in town where he was not accustomed to traveling. And while he was there, an official accosted him and uh, challenged him with these questions. They, the, the questions were these. Who are you? What are you doing? And why are you here? And the man thought about it for a moment. And then he said, those are good questions. He said, do you work around here? And the, the, the official said, well, yes, I do. Why do you ask? And he said, well, my business is going to bring me to this area regularly. And what I'd like to do is every time I come here, I want you to ask me those same three questions. Who are you? What are you doing? And why are you here? Those are great questions. I think most of us have a pretty good idea of who we are. Um, and maybe we even have a good idea of what we're doing. But it's that last question, why are you here? That's a hard question to answer sometimes. And I think it's particularly hard in church. You know, how would you answer that for yourself here in church? Why are you here? I mean, not what are you doing here, but why are you here? And because we're going to talk today about divisions in the church, how confident are you that the person next to you would answer that question the same way? If we're to be united, then it makes sense we should be united in answering these questions. Who are we? What are we doing? And why are we here? When I, when I first began studying this section of Paul's letter, I thought what he was talking about is simply divisions in the church. And certainly we have plenty of those. Um, we heard during our prayers, we're talking about the General Assembly that's coming up later this week. Um, the Presbyterian Church will meet uh, as it does every two years. And I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm not a betting man, but I'm going to go out on a limb. And I'm going to guess that there may be some controversies in the course of that. <laughs> yes, it, it's conceivable that there may be some arguments uh, during the course of that meeting. Um, I'm guided in that in that speculation by the fact that the uh, the United Methodists just had their general conference every four years. They had that back in May, and there were controversies at the general conference of the Methodists. So I'm guessing that uh, they have nothing on the Presbyterians who will be able to, to beat them, at least in the intensity of their arguments. Both denominations, since their inception, have been characterized, at least at times, by their arguments as much as by what it is that they believe. And in, the, in both denominations, the, um, the, uh, here. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, um, in both denominations, a lot of the arguments have been, uh, in the area of social witness. Um, and particularly, and not, not all of them, but, but, uh, mostly in social witness and particularly in, uh, areas related to human sexuality. So questions that have come up about ordination standards, about same-sex marriage, and about full inclusion of LGBTQ individuals in the life of the church. So these have been questions that the church has been wrestling with, and and despite uh, 40 years in the case of the Methodists, uh, 45 years in the case of the Methodists, and 30-something years in the case of the Presbyterians, uh, no answers have been arrived at that everybody's happy at. So certainly we might hear this passage today where Paul appeals for unity in the church and say, well, I know exactly what Paul was talking about. But really, we don't have to go to Portland. We don't have to go to the annual conferences, the uh, annual, um, sorry, the the quadrennial or the biennial uh, gatherings of our denominations to find controversy. Oftentimes, we have controversies in churches uh, that were more 
familiar with. We just heard about one that is in the process of, of recovering from a, from a lengthy controversy involving the pastors. Um, and I was thinking about that as I read an article in the, um, uh, in the Boston Globe, there's an absolutely fascinating article, and I commit it to you. In fact, I've, I've got a link to it on my blog, and I'll put that on the Facebook page for the church. Um, it's, it's a 10,000-word-long profile of a mainline church in Boston that uh, has been going through a, a lengthy period of decline and kind of all the challenges that that, that church has been facing uh, in the course of that decline. And I want to read you just a little uh, excerpt from it. Um, because this may kind of put it in context. It's like, oh, I know churches like that. It says um, this, uh, uh, this is in about 2004, I think. But the conflicts continued, exposing a divide between people who had been there for decades and more recent arrivals. In 2005, the church council advised the clergy couple, there was a couple of uh, pastors there, um, the clergy couple, to begin searching for a new church, and they were already looking. After they left, the infighting metastasized. An interim minister and associate minister clashed about how to lead the church forward. The congregation split into factions. Some people stopped speaking to one another, avoiding one another's eyes at coffee hour and even in the passing of the peace. So they were in conflict. Uh, and if you read the article, it's, it's about much more typical church uh, uh, conflict areas, program and uh, budget and uh, uh, leadership in the church. Um, so it goes on to say there was a, a Reverend Stephen Savides who was in his 30s. He had come from South Africa with a, a ministry of resolving congregational conflict, and he had some success but basically did not solve all the problems. Um, and when he left, uh, there, the, the church was in a better place, but conflict continued. So I commend the, the article to you. It's a fascinating article, and you may be able to say, I know churches like that. I know churches that have been through similar sorts of problems. And um, so I think, I think as we read this passage, we don't have to go to the big issues that have divided our denomination for 30 or 40 years. We can go to everyday things that we've seen in churches, uh, maybe in this church, um, uh, maybe in other churches we've, we've been familiar with. Um, and, and we can say to ourselves, that's what Paul's talking about, um, about uh, there being unity in the church. So what does Paul say? He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me here, Paul does not pull his apostolic authority. Uh, last week, if you were here, Paul pointed out he was an apostle called by God. But he doesn't say, this is, this is a word from the Lord. He says, I'm appealing to you as a brother in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that there be an agreement, that, that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. And why is that? He says, because it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. So we don't know exactly who they were, but, but apparently what had happened, we heard a passage in Acts where we read how Paul um, was in Ephesus, and while he was in Ephesus, a man named Apollos showed up, who is a very eloquent speaker. Apollos um, was uh, encouraged to go to Achaia, which is where, where uh, Corinth was, and he spent some time then in the church of Corinth. And while he was there, uh, factions formed within the church. Some people said, I belong to Paul. Some people said, I belong to Apollos. Some people said, I belong to Cephas or Simon Peter, the uh, disciple of Jesus. Um, and some people would say, well, I've got you all beat because I belong to a faction, but my faction is the most important one. I belong to the faction of Jesus. 
And he says, he says, that's ridiculous. Has Jesus been divided? Of course Jesus has not been divided. Jesus cannot be divided. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Well, since Paul is writing the letter, no, of course Paul wasn't crucified for you. Were you baptized in the name of the Paul? And he says, he says, well, actually, let me stop and think. And he lists everybody that he has baptized. He says, well, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say you were baptized in my name. And then he stops and says, wait, I also baptized Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anybody else. Uh, but he's sure he didn't baptize anybody in his own name. He says there's only one name we can be baptized in, and that's the name of Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says, I didn't baptize anybody in the name of Paul. It's ridiculous you're having arguments over these personality issues within the church. He says, you should all be of one mind and one purpose. And I think that is the key, to be of one mind and one purpose. Because it's hard to be united with people if you don't know what they're there for. You know, I think a lot of us know why we come to church. We come to church for the worship, or we come to church for the the fellowship and the community. We have different reasons why we come to church, but really, those are not why questions. Those are what questions. So, uh, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Um, uh, I was reading an article um, by a by a uh, by an Episcopalian priest, uh, Mark Marino, and he's talking about this phenomenon. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you know people like this. They will tell you, "I'm spiritual but not religious." Have you ever heard anybody tell you they're spiritual but not religious? Uh, What what he says about it is this. He says, "The world has recognized the vacuousness." Of world of life without God, spirituality is an acknowledgement of our unavoidable religious nature. He says. He says, uh, to worship is to have an experience of God that that you realize um, that there is a God, and that is intrinsically a worshipful experience. Now you may do one of two things: you may run away because you feel unclean before God, or you know. You, you may stay there and bask in God's presence, but either way, the hair on your arms will stand up because you are experiencing God. And he goes on to talk about this. He says, I recently walked the final leg of the El Camino de Santiago in Spain. Uh, that is a, a medieval-era uh, pilgrimage route that went through Spain. It actually went through all of Europe, but the, the last chunk of it is in Spain, and it goes to... Uh, a church in uh, Compostelo, Spain, and a lot of people have begun walking it. It's become very popular in the last few years. My nephew walked it a couple of years ago. Um, he's from California, but he went to Spain and he walked the, the route of the, the um, El Camino de Santiago. And I know some people here in Anchorage who have done it as well. Um, so people uh, have started doing this. And in fact, last year, 250,000 people walked this route of the Camino de Santiago of Campostello. And he says, he talks about when he was taking that that path, he went to the church when he got to the end, he went to the church in Campostello, and there were masses with 2,000 people, mostly millennials, who had come there to walk the route and to have some kind of experience of the divine. They were spiritual. But he says they weren't religious. They didn't have any interest in becoming part of any kind of community of faith. They were, they were shopping for religious experiences because they wanted to connect with the divine, but that was where it stopped. They just 
were spiritual, but not religious. They worshipped, but they didn't want to be part of any kind of a faith community. So worship is a what, but it's not a why. Worship is something people get whenever they have an encounter with the divine. Well, what about community? Community is another one of these things. I'm sure Paul would say, in fact, he does say in this letter, community is an important part of what the church does. But for Paul, community is not the why either. Community is a what. I was thinking about this. There's an uh, an article, another article. This is the last article I'll read um, uh, from um, The Guardian. It's a newspaper in the United Kingdom, but I read it online. And it's entitled this, McDonald's. You can sneer, but it's the glue that holds communities together. I'm going to read you a little bit of it, too. Walk into any McDonald's in the morning, and you will find a group of mostly retired people clustering in a corner, drinking coffee, eating and talking. And I read that, and I thought, well, how odd that in the United Kingdom they do this, too, because my dad does this. Every morning he gets up at 5, and he goes and he meets with his group of Friends at the McDonald's, they drink the coffee, and because he's 87 and no one can stop him, he has a little bag of three cookies, and that's his breakfast. Good for him, exactly. So that's what he does, and he finds community there. The article goes on, they're drawn to McDonald's because it has inexpensive, good coffee, clean bathrooms, space to sprawl, and unlike community centers, it's also free of bureaucracy. Most importantly, though, McDonald's provides many with the chance to make real and valuable connections. People are as hungry for community as they are for worship. And so they find it. They find it in McDonald's. And I think there's a whole conversation we could have about about why people look for community in McDonald's instead of in the church. Because the community they find at McDonald's is contingent. You've got to be the kind of person who can fit in, right? This is a retired group of men, almost always. And if that's not you, it may not, it may not work out for you here. In fact, they point out in the article that typically, not always, but typically, these groups are segregated by race, um, as well as by uh, gender. So, it's not a perfect community, but it is community and people find it there. But it's contingent, not just on who you are, but it's contingent on McDonald's. If McDonald's gets a new CEO, If they have a new corporate policy, what happens to your community when they start shuffling you along after you've been there, you know, for 15 minutes? What happens to your community then? So people want community and they will find it where they can. Community is important, but it's still just a what? For Paul, community and worship, as important as they are, are not the why. And so the people cannot be united in a common purpose if it's just worship or community. So what is Paul getting at? Well, I have two answers for that. One of them is come back next week because we're going to, we're going to see a deeper, a deeper dive into Paul's thinking, but we can already see this week where his head is at because he points us in this direction. He says, was Paul crucified for you in the middle of this passage? And he says, Christ did not send me to baptize. Christ did not send me to do something that's very important. Baptizing is important. But it's a what. It's not a why. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, not because I'm so clever with words, 
because I don't need to be clever with words. There is power in the cross of Christ. So I have been sent to proclaim the gospel, to talk about the power of the cross. What does he mean by the power of the cross? Well, the gospel. He says that there is a God. There is a God who knows all the ways that this world is broken, who knows all the ways that you are broken. He knows all the ways the world has broken you and hurt you and all the other people in the world. God knows everything about us, sees us with perfect clarity, and loves us despite our brokenness. But God is different from the world because what the world does when it sees brokenness, it either averts its eyes or it says, I'm going to get rid of anything I don't like. And I'm going to use force to get what I want. Whether it's to get what I want or to get rid of what I don't like, the world says, I'm going to force my way upon this situation. And God sent his son where the world would beat us into submission. God sent his son to submit that the world could beat him. And this is the power of the cross. Not that God would fix the world by imposing his will on it, but that God would send his son to submit to the worst the world could do. And in that is the gospel. In that is the power of transformation for the world and for those of us who live in it. This is where Paul is headed. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim this gospel. Not because I'm good with words, but because there's power in the cross. This is why the church exists. And if our answer to the question, why am I here, is because of the worship or because of the community, then we are like that early church saying, I belong to Paul, who is a great saint, or Apollos, who's an eloquent speaker, or Cephas, perhaps the greatest of all the disciples. If we have rallied around anything other than the cross of Christ, then we have missed the point. Jesus said to the church, he said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he told his disciples, go therefore into the world. And then he said what to do there, to make disciples, to teach them everything he had taught them, to baptize them in the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he said that this is the center of what the church is about. The church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of the God who came to submit so the world could beat him and thereby be transformed. This is why the church exists. If we have rallied around anything else, we are mistaken. Paul would have us rally only around the gospel of Christ. So why are you here? Why am I here? We're here because of the gospel of Christ. What do we do is a separate conversation. But why are we here? Because of the cross of Christ and the mission we have to proclaim it in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.